When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, we're going to have a classic rerun. It's Holiday Stories 8 with the steaming hot and hilarious Joel Kim Booster. The first time I ever masturbated outside the home was at my dad's office. Um, that's a different episode of Risk. Uh, <laughs> that and more, but before that, this is the last call, folks. Time is running out for purchasing the Risk book for all your friends and family for the holidays. It is the perfect gift, my motherfuckers. It is loaded, chock full of surprises, beautiful stories, tear-jerking stories, hilarious stories, shocking, scary, fascinating stories from people you know like Mark Marin and Michael Ian Black and Aisha Tyler and Dan Savage, and also some of the very best stories that have ever been shared on the podcast before, but completely rewritten by the authors for book form, and six stories you've never heard before. Four Q&A with all the authors. It is just chock full of incredibly amazing life experiences. And it's called Risk. True stories people never thought they'd dare to share. You can find it at theriskbook.com or wherever books are sold as an audiobook, an ebook, or paperback. Also, I am so honored and thrilled to have been on this remarkable sex-positive podcast that comes out of Nairobi, Kenya. It's called The Spread, and it's hosted by a young lady named Kaz. Actually, if you look up on SoundCloud, Karen Kaz Lucas, that's K-A-R-E-N, K-A-Z-L-U-C-A-S on SoundCloud. You can find all the episodes of The Spread there or just look for it where you find your podcasts. It's just so exciting to see such a wonderfully brilliant and positive and compassionate show about sexuality coming from another part of the world. So look up The Spread. Also, if you're looking to do a little spreading of your own this, holiday season you gotta get on over to adamandeve.com for a limited time you'll get 50 percent off just about any item and they have a bazillion items there a lot of stuff you can shove up the old wazoo or whatever else you got when you select your one item at 50 percent off you'll also receive a free sex swing you just hang that fucker to your door and then hang on tight <laughs> and to top it all off, they'll throw in free shipping for the whole order. So check out adamandeve.com for this special offer. 50% off one item when you type in risk for the offer code on checkout. 
You'll get the free sex swing, free shipping. Just use the offer code RISK at adamandeve.com. Now here's the show. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is the always magnificent Wynton Marsalis behind me now. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Happy holidays, everyone. I am so damn glad that the break is coming. (laughs) I have never had such a happening year Uh, and thank you thank god thank you thank everything for it (laughs) but i'm spent lordy mama pass the nog kids pass the nog we have four wonderful stories today that uh, touch on the theme of the holidays. This is the one time of the year when we try to keep <laughs> things from getting too bleak. You know what I mean? I mean, we did have a lot of great pitches this year from people about war and murder and mayhem and stuff like that. And that's great. I mean, we will try to get to those later in the year. Just wanted everyone to know we love and so deeply appreciate people who pitch to us. But uh, we're going to try to keep things not too bad. (laughs) Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from my good friend, Joe Mulligan. Oh, my God. It was so great to hear from Joe again. Uh, He's going to tell a tale a little bit later that I think Bukowski would be proud of. But before that... Joel Kim Booster is back on the show. I've said it before. I'll say it again. Joel is so talented. He's popping up all the time now on MTV and Logo. You can find him on Twitter at I Hate Joel Kim. He told this one just the other night at the Risk Live show in New York City. It's a story we call The Stylist. Thank you so much. Um, Thank you, Kevin. So I haven't been home for Christmas in 10 years. Um, Maybe that's not super unusual to hear in New York City. There are plenty of people here who can't afford to go home or don't celebrate Christmas, if you can believe that. Um, And some people just 
aren't allowed to go home. And none of those things are true for me. I am poor, uh, but I'm Brooklyn poor, which means that I tell people that I'm poor, but I own an iPhone. Um, <laughs> so I can afford a plane ticket, you know? Um, my poverty is more a poverty of the mind. Uh, <laughs> when I say that. Um, Christmas, again, is my favorite holiday. I do celebrate it every single year. I love it. And I am allowed home. Um, my relationship with my family is complicated, though, as you will hear. Um, you see, Christmas was always a huge deal in my house, not necessarily out of your run-of-the-mill sort of Midwestern devotion to nostalgia, but more a religious, pedantic obsession with the holiday. You see, my parents were Christians, capital C, Southern Baptist, evangelical Christians. Um, they were so Christian that uh, they homeschooled me until I was 16 years old because they didn't want me learning about sex or evolution and fringe benefit. Now I don't know about states either. Um, really worked out well for everyone. But you know, I did learn about Christmas. That is one thing I did learn. The real reason for Christmas, you know, not Santa Claus or any of that bullshit. That took second place to the story of Joseph, a carpenter who searched far and wide for a place for his child bride to get birth. Um, that's the story I learned. Um, you know, there were all the candlelight services, Christmas Eve, Christmas morning. I sang the little kid part in the Christmas shoes until I was old enough to sing the adult part in the Christmas shoes, okay? <laughs> Thank you for a smattering of applause. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Um, you know, but we still got presents uh, because my parents aren't complete monsters. Um, you know, but ironically, the presents were the things that really fucked me up <laughs> as an adult. Um, you see, I was a pretty gay kid growing up, and for gay kids, Christmas is the hardest time of year to hide, you know? Because um, you're basically just handing your parents a list of things that out you every single year. Uh, it's really difficult for me. Uh, and you know, it, throughout the year, it's like easy to suppress, you know? I, I was able to like suppress my love of old Hollywood musicals and Scott Bakula circa Quantum Leap. Um, but it was pretty tough to ask for like a Little Mermaid Barbie doll without blowing my cover, you know? Um, but that wasn't something that I was born understanding. You know, that was something that was learned. And I'll always remember the Christmas that I learned it. Uh, it was 1994. I was six years old in Plainfield, Illinois, and I wanted what every little boy in the nation wanted for Christmas that year. You guys probably know what it is. Say it with me. The Crimp and Curl Pony by the Cabbage Patch Company. <laughs> That's nuts. Um, normally people just shout it out. Uh, right with me. I guess it's a regional thing. Um, which is fine. That's all fine. Um, the Crimp and Curl Pony, yes, that's what I wanted. And I woke up that Christmas morning and I remember getting two big gifts that year. 
Um, I came out under the tree. There was one big package that I knew was the Crimp and Curl Pony because I had discovered it earlier that week, hidden in the bed. Um, but also under the tree was a big piece of wood with the bow on it uh, that my dad had purchased me intending to build a workbench with me. You see, my mom had gotten me the Crimp and Curl Pony because my mom is a sweet, kind woman who is slightly naive. Um, my dad got me the piece of wood because he is a traditional man's man. You know, he was a farmer growing up. He was raised by German immigrants. He breaks tractors for a living uh, for Case IH, which is a tractor company. That's what he does. He breaks new tractors in. Um, that sounds really interesting, but I've been to Take Your Kids to Work Day and it's boring as fuck. <laughs> The first time I ever masturbated outside the home was at my dad's office. Um, that's a different episode of Risk. Uh, but long story short, with my dad, I think I was kind of a disappointment. My dad was always pretty cautious about me as a kid. And I think in hindsight, I knew that he knew there was something inside of me that was a little off that he just didn't like. So I opened up the gift <laughs> of the Crimp and Curl Pony, which Kevin, can you come out right now? Um, I'm losing them, they're sad now. Um, <laughs> this is it. Um, this is not the Crimp and Curl Pony from my youth, that one is long gone, but I did pick this one up a couple years ago. <laughs> sort of problematic in a lot of ways, I'm looking at it now. Um, this is Blake. Blake Lively, um, <laughs> couldn't already tell. And for those of anybody listening at home, this crimp and curl pony, imagine a hard plastic pony's body with the troubling fetal face of a Cabbage Patch doll, um, <laughs> with some sort of like yarn hair that easily crimps and curls. Um, and that's what you have. Um, Oh, it's very stiff and old. Um, she'll sit down there for the rest of the night. Um, but yeah, I, I open up the Crimp and Curl Pony. Couldn't care less about the workbench. Very excited about the pony, though. Uh, took it straight to the kitchen table. Just started crimping and curling right away. Um, could not wait. And I will always remember listening to my dad talk, maybe, I don't know, I think sometimes adults think kids are stupid and maybe my dad also thought I was deaf. Um, but he asked my mom pretty close to me while I was styling, um, you know, Janet, why did you get him this girl's toy? I will always remember that. And my mom, God bless her, turned to my dad and said, well, Ken, my brother Bob, he used to get baby dolls for Christmas, and now he's a pediatrician, so... <laughs> Case closed, Ken. Um... <laughs> and like, what did my mom think I was gonna be a fucking horse hair stylist? Like, what? <laughs> what was her end game? <laughs> But in their own ways, they were just so in denial. My mom was just so in denial about 
what I was. And as funny as it is in hindsight now, it was devastating as a six-year-old because it really was like the first time I can remember my parents putting into words like, oh, I'm weird. There's something not right about this. And I'll never forget that. You know, I'm sure I got a lot of other goofy shit for Christmas over the years, but I was careful from that point forward and worried, mostly, until I was 17. You see, my parents, when I turned 16, finally sent me to public school my junior year of high school, and it was just as big a disaster as they had always feared. Uh, within a month of going to public school, I had drinked, smoked, and tried weed for the first time, as well as come out of the closet, just <laughs> flying out as fast as possible. Um, giving every person I could find on MySpace a blowjob, uh, which I wrote furiously about in my journal, which is the worst idea any gay teen has ever had. Um, you see, because after a couple months of that, my mom read the journal, because that's what moms do. Uh, and a couple months of turmoil later, she asked me to leave just after Thanksgiving. So I did. Now there's another story here, a much longer story, but I'll leave it at Christmas because that first Christmas I spent away from home, you know, I traveled to rural Illinois with a close friend and her family and it was great. It was weird. I mean, no one asked me, a strange gangly Asian kid, why I was in the middle of this white chaos, you know, all of a sudden. But they were all so kind and charitable and when it came time to give out gifts, I received that year four copies of the Rent movie soundtrack. Um, yes, because when you're a Midwestern mom who catches wind that a gay kid is gonna come and spend Christmas with you, you go to the Target and you get the soundtrack. What else do you do? And I remember those CDs so vividly, as much as I remember the, the Pony, because I wouldn't have never asked for them, for myself. I listened to the shit out of those albums. You know, it might have been sort of weirdly like stereotypical to just give a strange gay child those CDs, but they were right, you know? Um, and I loved them. I mean, it was just so thoroughly gay. And it, it's something that, you know, I would have wanted for a, a long time. And I remember as sad as I was to feel so disconnected from my family that year, I remember being like, oh, this is what it feels like to be out and have people just, you know, know you um, on that level. So last Christmas was the first Christmas I spent here in New York. I had sloppy, you know, unprotected sex with a stranger. I woke up and ate Indian food by myself, and then I walked to the movie theater to see Annie starring Cameron Diaz by myself. <laughs> sort of the modern-day adult equivalent to four Rent CDs, you know? Um, and now, things have gotten way better. I call my parents every year on Christmas just to let them know that I'm alive and that I love them. My mom is as positive and as naive as ever and gets very disappointed when I tell her that I did not go to church, no, I went and saw a little black girl sing tomorrow um, alone. And my dad is also sort of the same. You know, I'm sure he still wishes I would build things with my hands and not tweet. Um, but I tell him that I paid off a credit card and I hear how proud of 
me he is, and I feel like I cracked the code <laughs> 10 years later. And now, here I am, 27 years old, still wondering, is a horse hairstylist a thing? Um, is it a profession? What do I need to do? All right, that's it. Thank you so much for listening. Patty bursts through the door and makes a beeline for Dave's bar stool, and I think, oh, Christ, I don't need this. Patty and Dave live across the street. They've been engaged for 15 years in this dysfunctional telenovela country-western breakup-to-makeup relationship, and this bar is where they work out their issues in front of anybody who just might happen to be there. This is their stage. It's Hell's Kitchen, 10th Avenue between 50 and 51st Street. It's Christmas Eve, 1986, and I'm working the day shift. I have two more hours to go, and I get on the bus up to Woodstock with a bottle of bourbon for the sweet potatoes my loved one will be cooking for us when we had Christmas Day tomorrow. Quiet afternoon at the bar. It was raining outside and, and making all the colors run in the windows like tears and slushy rain. And people are sitting in singles at the bar or lonely, miserable couples. And Nell Torme is on a cassette player intoning, have yourself a merry little Christmas like he wants to slit his wrists. And, you know, there's no lonelier place to be than a bar, any bar on Christmas Eve, because they just a desperately cheerful nature against all odds cheerful it's 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 where people who have no cherished place to go no hallowed family hall to be together no warm embrace no place to go go they go and they drink a lot there has been a guy who came in earlier this afternoon and he wants blackberry brandy and i give him one and he falls asleep at the bar and i shake him to wake him up and he opens up his eyes and he asks for another drink and I say no and he goes come on I go no 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 I, I can't say you're gonna fall asleep I said I'll give you coffee if you want it and he shudders at the thought of that and <laughs> and leaves <laughs> uh Fred Kelly has been in earlier he comes back about three hours later Fred is a regular he's stumbling back in he's knocking over bar stools on the way to his favorite stool and I come around the corner just to politely say Fred no that's it man I get to him, he straightens up, he looks at me, he goes, Joe, smell my breath. And I said, Fred, uh, number one, I don't want to smell your breath. And number two, I don't have to smell your breath because I'm not serving you, okay? You're 86 for today, Fred. Just go home, get some rest, all right? I'll see you. Merry Christmas. And he shakes my hand and he leaves. You see, this is something you may not know about local bartenders, okay? Local bartenders are respected community figures. A cop can arrest you. A priest can give you penance, a judge can sentence you, but a bartender can cut you off. And if you're a local, you respect that, because that's the code. You have to respect the code. This is the closest place to your house that will still serve you. The other place is too far away, especially in rainy or cold weather, so you will behave. 
So that gives the bartender a little cachet. He sometimes becomes more than a bartender. He's kind of a, a daycare center for alcoholics. He will serve you or not, depending on your uh, intake level and coping mechanism thereof. He uh, will introduce new activities when the old ones get too noisy or boisterous. And, and then he just becomes this default advice columnist. Maybe because like, drunk people will talk to anybody and the bartender just happens to be right there. And maybe the bartender is conscious of his tip that he might get from listening well. And so I find myself in this philosopher king Yoda dispensing mode every once in a while. You know, some are like, oh, we broke up 14 times, but now you really got it together. You, you ironed out all the bugs. Well, good, good, good luck. That sounds great. You know, and, and sometimes you just, you know, playground, you know, I, no, you don't talk to him and you don't talk to him. Okay. I don't care who's talking. No, no, you don't, you don't talk, take it outside. And like I said, they will comply. So, you know, there was no bouncer, just me, and, and I was walking the beat. You know, sometimes I felt like a, a, like a Wild West sheriff, you know, instead of a badge, I had a bottle. So Dave has been there all afternoon with his brother Jimmy and their friend Johnny McCool. They're from the neighborhood. I mean, they grew up in this neighborhood, Hell's Kitchen. They have metal hooks with wooden handles their grandfathers and fathers used to work the Hudson River docks as longshoremen. You know, they grew up in the real Hell's Kitchen West Side story. I mean, they were the Jets without the choreography, the, the Jets without the Jetes. Uh, they lived through the Westies, gangster, 80s, the whole thing. And it's the end of the 80s, and most of the Westies are gone or in witness protection. So they're kind of just left. And Dave and Jimmy, they run a local limousine service. They take care of the neighborhood weddings and funerals. And, and Johnny McCool just drinks. And they've been there all afternoon. They're drinking buds. They're in a good mood. This is their place. This is their local. See, Roberts is just the latest incarnation of a bar that's been there since the 20s when it was a speakeasy. It's been through the 40s when Woody Guthrie apparently played there. And now Robert is the latest owner. He took over a place, a guy called BJ's. Robert kept up BJ's habit of playing only jazz on a cassette player. No rock and roll. Keeps the kids out. Robert inherited from the previous owner. He also inherited people like Pauline, who's here today. Pauline is a retired nurse. She lives by herself. Okay, so this bar is her parlor. This is her social, where she sits and holds court. See, Robert has piano players play the lunch and dinner crowd, and Pauline will take it upon herself to go over to the piano player and request her repertoire, which is two songs, Summertime and Oh Danny Boy. And she will sing to surprise diners not expecting a floor show. Uh, Pauline, bless her soul, Pauline, she can never hit the high note in Danny Boy. She will always crack that note. She, she, she can't even get close to it. Then you'll go, oh, you know, that one. And if you know Pauline and you know she's singing that song, when she gets to that part of the song, you involuntarily wince. But she keeps trying. Today, though, she breaks it up for Christmas and sings Silent Night, a passable version. And Robert puts up with Pauline. I think because he's probably too afraid of what she'll do if he tells her to stop. <laughs> but I think also because he feels she gives a certain guys and dolls feel to this Hell's Kitchen bar. Robert is in his 50s, salt and pepper, hair, bearded, uh, a jazz boy, aficionado of Duke Ellington. He, he loves jazz. He loves this Hell's Kitchen bar. He loves being the proprietor. He uh, is given to speaking in that kind of jazzy Lenny Bruce referential jargon, like, hey, Joe, I don't want to get all kind of Louis Brunel fascist Catholic on you, but you're not cleaning the glasses. 
so it's getting livelier. It's an hour to go now, an hour later, and the place is kind of filling up. More people are coming in and crowding the bar, and, and they got the flashing lights, and I turn the music up, and Ella Fitzgerald is scatting away through Jingle Bells, you know, Jingle Bells, and Jimmy and Dave and Johnny are into that four-hour beer buzz. They're drinking, they're laughing, they're smoking their Paul Malls. They're happy, 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 you know, and just having a good time. And me, I am working the bar. I have an hour to go and I'm out of here. I'm cutting the lemons. I am stocking the beer for the night guy. I'm making drinks. I'm giving change. I'm being the machine. Go, go, go. And it's about this time that Patty burst through the door. And I think, ah, oh, Christ, here we go again. Here's another installment of telenovela. And Patty does not disappoint. She looks at Dave and goes, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. I've been waiting all afternoon upstairs with the nieces and the nephews, and you said you'd be Santa Claus, and you just sat here drinking. Thanks a lot. Storm's out. The whole bar kind of quiets down for a second and, and then goes right back where it was. But Dave is slumped in his bar stool, head down, neck getting red. Every once in a while, he just looks at his brother Jimmy and goes, Right? And I see the steam coming out of his ears. I see him getting furious. I see him getting into a rage. And I see him get up and make a beeline to the back hall where the payphone was. And I don't know why I did this, but I just kind of kicked into advice dispenser Yoda mode and I run after him and I push him against the wall and I say, listen, listen to me. I don't care what you do, who you're about to call, but before you do anything, you stand there, you take three deep breaths and you slowly count to 10 and you don't do anything until you do that. You got it? And he goes, uh, okay, okay, Joe. And I go back and I finish up my stuff. And Dave comes back about 10 minutes later and he comes over to me and goes, Joe, 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 thank you. Joe, Joe, you, you're the best, Joe, 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 thank you, Joe, I got, Joe, come here. I want to hug you, Joe. Come here, come here, Joe. And he comes to the open end and he gives me a hug and he, Joe, you're the best, Joe, can I kiss you? And he gives me this beardy, wet, sloppy kiss on my cheek and it comes to me that I have no more advice for Dave. What am I giving advice to him for in the first place? He's 15 years older than me. I'm a, I'm a kid from New Jersey. I, you know, I, I'm working this bar for rent. I'm not Yoda. What can I say to this guy that's going to change his life or make it better? I, you know, and I just got a vision of Christmas Eve's to come where it became like this Tom Waits song where it, you know he'd be giving me another kiss on the cheek and then I'd be sitting there pouring drinks to people who just want to black out for Christmas Day the day after and, and I'm the guy pouring. And suddenly I never wanted to pour a drink for anybody else ever again. I just wanted to get the hell away from here. So I just disengaged myself from Dave's embrace and went in the bathroom and rinsed my face and, and finished up the shift, finished it up, got out of there. I walked down Ninth Avenue to the Port Authority. I bought a bottle of Jim Beam and got on the bus to head up to Woodstock, where it not only took an hour for the bus to cross traffic-clogged 10th Avenue to get to the Lincoln Tunnel to get out of Manhattan, but the couple behind me were incredibly inept at getting their infant to stop screaming. So I put my earphones on, opened up my Walkman, 
put in a non-holiday mixtape. And as David Burns sang about needing something to change your mind, I did a quick calculation of how much bourbon would be needed for the sweet potatoes, and I drank the rest. risk this is of course the great tom waits behind me now and we just heard from joe mulligan it's great to have joe back on the show now did you know that 50 percent of the best paying jobs call for the ability to code one month.com is i can guarantee you personally me kevin allison i can tell you it is the best place to learn how to code in just one month. Their courses have helped over 60,000 students go from knowing zero about coding to building programs in languages like Python, Ruby, and JavaScript. OneMonth.com graduates have gone on to get jobs at prestigious startups like Airbnb, Instagram, and Spotify. Like I was saying, I personally have taken a class at OneMonth.com before, and I can say with total sincerity, I think these guys have taken online education to an entirely different level than I've seen before. I've taken courses other places, some of these other online schools, but at onemonth.com, the video tutorials are incredibly crystal clear. They break things down step by step, super smart, how granularly they break things down into digestible, understandable pieces. And you're in contact with the instructor and with your fellow students on a Slack channel as you go. So you have weekly assignments, but you're also able to ask questions and get feedback all along the way. I gotta say, I think that like what Steve Jobs was to computers in the 90s, the guys at one month are to online education right now. When you finish the course, you're going to have a portfolio of projects that you can show prospective employers. You'll get a certificate of a completion. And unless you're really shy about it, you will have at least one website on the internet that you created from nothing. So if you're interested in taking your career to the next level, for a limited time, head to onemonth.com slash 
risk to get 10% off any coding course. Again, that's onemonth.com slash risk to get 10% off any coding course. And a big thank you to onemonth.com for supporting risk and online education. Also, it's time to give a little shout out to our latest Patreon supporter, Hilary Dumas, or maybe it's Dumas, like the guy who wrote the Three Musketeers. <laughs> we are so, so grateful to all of our Patreon supporters. And my goodness gracious, if you go there, you will find that there is so much bonus content. One of the latest things we've put up is an interview between myself and one of our story coaches, Brad Lawrence. My gosh, it was such a loaded conversation we talked about all that goes into the creation of this show psychologically you know dealing with the egos of storytellers and dealing with you know the psychology of preparing stories and it was just a very in-depth conversation so stuff like that you can find on our patreon that really adds tremendously to the entire experience of being a fan of risk so go to patreon.com risk and become a patron of ours and help us keep risk running okay in just a bit we're gonna hear from the wonderful storyteller susan kent but before that a real character you should look him up on twitter at montyism this is monty lamont with a story we call The Year Without a Santa Claus. I can't fool you because The man with the merry ha-ha-ha Is good old Santa Claus So for me, growing up, Christmas was a very involved Catholic tradition. Mainly because of the fact that my mother's family, when they came from Italy, being old school Italians, they actually believed that the guy that brought their church and faith to America was the second coming of Jesus Christ. His name was Father Celeste, and my family is basically all buried near him at the cemetery. That's how strong the faith is in this guy. So that being said, you didn't mess with the religion and things that were strong in the religion. That being Christmas, because that was baby Jesus's birthday, which my mother loved. Even though my parents were dirt poor and on welfare, they made sure that Christmas was it. It was the number one holiday of the year. Bigger than your own birth. I mean, this was it. 
My mother would actually ask me to start my Christmas list in April. I mean, I was spoiled rotten. And believe me, like most kids, I took advantage and I made the craziest, craziest lists. They were pages and pages long. They were written in crayon, but I got everything on that list. Except, of course, if it was like a pony, which I did ask for more than once. And my parents actually tried to make up for it. One time they bought me a bunch of baby chickens because my father was raised on a poultry farm. It was nice, but they lasted one or two weeks. I ended up throwing them over the side of a porch from our second floor apartment because I thought they could fly! Who knew baby chickens couldn't fly? Not me. <laughs> That being said, the threat of someone telling me there was no such thing as Santa Claus was a genuine fear of my mother's for some reason. And you did not want to ruin Catholic family tradition, believe me. Plus, I was the king. Like, my parents spoiled me rotten, and whatever I said went, and you did not mess with the king. So now it's kindergarten, 1976, and we're living on the west side of Chicago, so my dad could freely do things I'm not at liberty to speak of. I mean, we are in the ghetto. Like one time I found shattered glass on the floor in the alley, and I thought they were diamonds, and I couldn't wait to bring them home because I was like, we're gonna be rich! But we weren't. So anyway, I'm in kindergarten, and we're learning to lace up entire shoes. And some kid comes up to me for no reason at all, and he just says to me, Hey, white boy, you know there's no such thing as Santa? And I was shaken to my core. One, I was one of the only, if not the only, white kid in class being publicly humiliated. Plus, Santa, the guy that came and helped baby Jesus, all being ripped out of my world. So I started to cry and scream like a maniac. My teacher actually had to come and hold me and they had to call my parents and wait for my parents to come and get me. It was a disaster. And when I got home, my parents went freaking crazy. That was when my mother, who never swore, swore like a maniac, and I learned the word jagoff, asshole, and motherfucking asshole motherfucker, and I actually thought my father was going to go back to school and murder that kid because he was that type of a guy. It was a terrifying incident for me. And I also learned at that moment my parents would stop at nothing to restore the faith. So it was Christmas morning after the incident. Now I was sleeping and it was 6 a.m. And my dad, he comes bursting into my room, screaming, boy, boy, wake up, Santa's here. And I was like, oh, what, I'm sleeping. Oh, oh, wait a minute, Santa's here. And I jumped out of bed like the room was on fire. And I ran to the front window and scanned the apartment and I saw nothing but my dad standing by an open window. But by the window, there was a bunch of snow on the floor with big boot prints in it. And my dad was standing there and he stuck his head out the window and he began to yell, boy, boy, come quick, there he goes, there goes Santa. And I ran to the window barefoot through the cold snow, making sure I did not step in Santa's tracks. And I get to the window and there's nothing. And then all of a sudden, I hear in the distance, ho, ho, ho. 
Ho, Merry Christmas, Monty. Wow, what? Santa here and he said my name? Santa was for real. My parents did it. The faith was restored. Santa was real. Plus, he left me a note and it was one of those really nice notes, you know, that you would get from the mall on the resume, brown paper, and it was written in calligraphy. I mean, it was totally official. I remember when I went back to school, I had my head held high. Santa was real. I was his friend and I had a note to prove it. I did find out later in life that the guy playing Santa was a friend of my dad's who stood on the roof since 5.30 a.m. in the cold Chicago snow waiting to get a free bag of something from my father that I'm not at liberty to speak of, but I heard it smells a lot like skunk. All was quiet on the Christmas front. A year or two had passed and everything was going well. I believed in Santa and there have been no challenges since the last incident. After that last episode though, my dad taught me to take no crap. He was always like, next time someone fucks with you in school, hit him in the face with a book. And I did, and I became the class bully. I mean, no one was being a jerk to me at this point. Until one day I was in second grade and I got into some sort of like bullshit male competition thing with this kid and I had him in a headlock, you know, which is really tough to break out of. So in hopes of me letting him go, he just says, you're a dummy. There is really no Santa. And that was weird and came out of nowhere. But then I was like, what? what? No Santa? For real? And he goes, yeah. And I believed this jerk so much I just let him go. He dropped to the floor and I freaked out, screamed and cried like a maniac all over again. The teachers already knew this kid has problems and they swaddled me again and I had to wait for my mother to come and pick me up from school. Hyper embarrassing, hyper crazy. It was beginning to seem that no Santa was my kryptonite, like my Achilles heel. My God in no Santa-fearing mother is now really, really scared that I'm going to lose my faith forever. All bets are off. She is not having it. So she says, get in the car, let's go. She takes me to Sister Bernard. Oh, and by the way, we didn't even have a car. My mother actually had to beg a friend of hers to let us use their car so she can immediately because this was a, a, a fucking stage four disaster. So she could take me to Sister Bernadette, which was a nun from the church I was raised going to. So we get to Sister Bernadette and my mother sits me down in front of her and she says, go ahead, tell her. Now I am trembling with the fear of God because Sister Bernadette is no fucking bullshit. One time I saw somebody mess up her breakfast order and they brought her scrambled eggs instead of over easy eggs. And she said, what is this? Get this out of here. I specifically asked for over easy and she pushed the plate away from her. I mean, she was not fucking around. So Sister Bernadette now looks at me very seriously and she knows that I am having doubts about Santa. And she smiles at me and she says, oh, my dear Monty, there really is a Kris Kringle. 
That boy is a fool and probably gets no presents for Christmas. Don't listen to fools. And then she kisses my forehead. That was it. I got to tell you, I was done. Hook, line, and sinker, blessed with the truth. It felt like God had touched me himself and said, you're in, you're in. The next day, I kicked that kid's ass again, and I officially became Santa's little renegade. From then on, whenever someone would question the existence of Santa Claus, I would just kick their ass. I knew the truth. By sixth grade, it seemed only I knew the truth. I must have beat up like six to eight kids for talking crap about Santa. I'm completely unaffected and unfazed by that, like I have no mental scars from that. But there has to be at least two to three, maybe six kids out there today that are shaken by the fact that someone beat their ass over mentioning the fact that there's no such thing as Santa, which there really isn't. Some time passes. It's October 1986. I'm a freshman at Lincoln Park High School, which is a very fancy school. I was a drama major. And, you know, I got to tell you, I wanted to, like, keep up with the Joneses. This was a nice neighborhood, lots of rich kids. And I came from a poor west side of the city. But I knew, you know what? I'm locked in with Santa. I'm going to ask for some really nice fucking shit, like a Sony Walkman, which came out at the time with the tape deck, and maybe some, some Dracar Noir Cologne. You know, real expensive, fancy stuff that poor kids can't get, but rich kids could. And since I was tight with Santa, I can get whatever I want. I was locked and loaded. My Christmas list was set. I couldn't wait. So now I'm sitting in my front room, you know, watching TV, when all of a sudden, my parents both come walking towards me with this concerned look on their faces. And my parents never bothered me during He-Man, I mean, that's my jam. And I sat straight up and I said, uh, what's up? My mother hesitates at this point, she can't even face me, she turns her head. And my dad, he scrunches his eyes shut slumps his shoulders and sighs and at this point i'm like what the fuck I, what's going on and then my mother blurts out there's no such thing as santa claus <laughs> what <laughs> i mean what what it feels like i just got fucking punched in the midsection and had the air knocked out of me I was stunned at every Christmas, every story, every ass-kicking I delivered flashed before my eyes. I had been lied to my whole life, deceived, tricked, and by the ones who loved me and I loved most, I screamed out again, what? What did you say? My mom immediately went to hug me and I pulled and pushed away from her. And then I screamed, cried, ran into my room, shut and locked the door. In that exact order, I was an asshole. I felt like I was in a relationship with someone who had just told me they never really loved me and that everything we had was just a lie. But this was worse. It was all over. Santa's little renegade just died. I didn't know what to do, what to think. I felt blurry, disconnected, like I was in a, a, a bubble. Hours passed, 
Then I finally came out of my room and screamed like a maniac, why? Why did you do this to me? Oh, I was such a dramatic spoiled shit. Why did you lie to me? My mom stood there and she just cried and she said, sorry, you're getting too old. We had to tell you. And I just crumbled and we hugged and held each other for what seemed like an eternity. That first Christmas with no Santa was weird. I didn't want any presents. It was over. I was sad. In some time, I mean, I got back into Christmas and I told my parents how much I loved those awesome Christmas experiences they gave me. But three years ago, there was a huge change in my family. My father was diagnosed with terminal cancer and, and that was awful news. So for his last Christmas, we went all out. Whatever my dad wanted, we did. And all he really wanted was crazy fucking lights everywhere and a Christmas tree covered in tinsel and those stupid fucking popcorn balls, which he had no teeth. He had a few teeth right in the bottom, but he would grind them on his teeth. But we got him those. And we put the Christmas lights up everywhere. And when I say everywhere, I mean he wanted them on the couch. He wrapped them around his fucking dresser in his bedroom. It was crazy. My mother usually... You know, we do like Italian like meatballs or some shit like that. But this year, my dad wanted his favorite was a spiral cut ham from Aldi. Now, I know what you're thinking. If you're from Chicago, Aldi's like the cheapest of the cheap. But man, that fucking spiral cut ham is the fucking best. And we did it. And he loved it. And he was so thrilled. He was happier than a pig and shit. He was all smiles and just full of love and full of joy. And it was the best. And you know what? I did suspect that Christmases might become depressing for me from then on. But when I saw all the joy and wonder in my dad's eyes his last Christmas, I realized something. My dad and my mom gave me a gift that will never stop giving. They created all of those wonderful moments that I now cherish as memories. And that's why my dad loved his last Christmas so much. Because we were giving that gift of joy and wonderful experience of Christmas right back to him. So I'm happy and proud to say that even though I'm now 44 years old, my mother still asks for my Christmas list every April. And I love her for it. Still spoiled, still rotten. Merry Christmas. Hey, jingity jing, it's Dominic the donkey, jingity jing, the Italian Christmas donkey, la 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 Santa's got a little friend, his name is Dominic. The cutest little donkey, you never see him kick. 
When Santa visits his paisans with Dominic, he'll be Because the reindeer cannot climb the hills of Italy Hey, jingity jing, it's Dominic the donkey Jingity jing, the Italian Christmas donkey La 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 So for me, the holidays when I was a little kid were about decorating the house with my mother. Before October was even halfway done, she would be dragging boxes out of the attic so that we could start hanging garlands and going through the ornaments and getting our tree ready. And so by Halloween, we were done. And then I spent the beginning of November running behind her and turning off the lights so nobody in town knew that the tree was already up before Thanksgiving. <laughs> but as proactive as my mother was about decorating, she was a huge procrastinator when it came to buying our gifts. And so every Christmas Eve, we would be packed into the car first thing in the morning and my little sister and I would be driven to Albany or Macon, Georgia, the towns that were closest to us that had a mall, where my mother would spend the entire day running from store to store frantically buying as much as she could because Christmas was huge for her and she wanted to make sure that Christmas Day was super special. The thing is though, she never made a lot of money and what she did make she didn't really manage well and the panic of being there Christmas Eve trying to make sure that the next day was the best Christmas ever would make her a little crazy and she would buy extravagant gifts without really thinking it through. We'd go home after the mall had closed and my sister and I would stay up with her all night and help her wrap our gifts so that we could open them the next morning. And then as she's handing them over the next day, you could see the buyer's remorse kind of start to settle in. I would open a pair of Glory Vanderbilt jeans and her face would kind of drop at the memory of the price of it. And my sister would open the Atari system and, oh God, you could see it. And so then as she's handing the gifts out, it would start to come with a little commentary. Y'all know, it costs a lot to give you the best Christmas ever. Well, I hope Fitzgerald Waterlight and Bond's in the holiday spirit next month when I can't pay the bill. So then by the end of the day, as excited as we wanted to be about all these amazing presents, we just felt shitty because they had caused mother such financial burden. And I started to hate Christmas as much as I loved it. So it was this fucked up time of year for me. And once I moved away to college, it just got worse because on top of the fact that my mother was still doing the panicked shopping spree right before Christmas and buying too much stuff and then regretting it and making us feel awful about it, when I left my little hometown of Fitzgerald, Georgia to go to Tifton, Georgia, which is, you've never heard of that either, uh, <laughs> It was a big step for us. They also had a mall. And so from there, I went to Florida State. And so I was making these little tiny steps 
out and away from my mother and she began to see me as a deserter who had abandoned the family to try to have some fancy life in the big city and that really kicked in once I was in my late 20s and I moved to New York and I was living in Brooklyn and she called me one day and she's like Susan you know it's just like you've moved up there and you've got this highfalutin life now and you just think you're better than all of us and I didn't think I was better than all of them but I knew that I was different and I didn't want to go home anymore the only times I did go were for Christmas and once I got to New York and was living my highfalutin life uh, <laughs> broke in Brooklyn uh, I finally got up the courage to tell her I wasn't coming home that year and I was scared because it was the biggest day of the year for her so I decided I would tell her that I didn't have enough money for a flight which I was broke but I had enough money to get home I just knew that she'd at least understand not having that and it went over pretty well so the next couple of days I spent in Park Slope at a friend's apartment with a big group of people and we drank and we danced and we watched movies and we laughed and not once did any of them ever mention how they had scraped and scrimped and sacrificed to buy me the gifts that you probably aren't going to appreciate anyway and it was the best Christmas of my life and so after that I didn't go home for Christmas and I only went home for emergencies which the first of them came about a year later my sister called because she had found my mom collapsed in the kitchen floor and had to have her rushed to the, to the hospital and when I get back to Georgia my sister sits me down and tells me what happened you know well we got her to the hospital and she woke up and she said she had a migraine headache so they gave her Tylenol 3 but mama said it didn't touch it so she asked for a Vicodin and so she took the Vicodin and it didn't work either so they gave her a Percocet and then another Percocet and I think after that it was a Dilaudid and that's when she finally passed out I don't know Susan I'm just I'm worried because like that seems like a lot of medicine I, she must be really sick well guys I don't know about you but I've taken a Vicodin <laughs> and I've taken a Percocet and I would never take the two together and the idea that somebody could take all of those pills and still be coherent enough to ask for more well I knew what was going on Amy <laughs> mom's not sick she's a fucking drug addict once we realized that, um, my mom had cancer at that point. She had been diagnosed with stage three breast cancer and somewhere along the way, she had developed a 90 plus pill a week habit. She really loved a benzo, which is why she was so good at that Vicodin Percocet combo. <laughs> and um, I had also developed a habit along the way. I was addicted to A&E's intervention, so I knew exactly what to do. <laughs> I went to my mom's house with a shopping bag and I gathered all the pill bottles. I knew to look underneath the drawers and in her pants pockets and I found everything and I went to her doctor and there we decided we were going to have her forcibly admitted to rehab. So the next two nights I stayed with her in the hospital while she detoxed from all the pills and 
we went on some adventures together in her hallucinations. Uh, some dead relatives came to visit. We rode some roller coasters together, which was awesome. And I journaled about the entire experience. And I called my stories Tales from the Cot. And because it was 2008, my journal at the time was a blog. So, um, a few weeks later, when my mother found the blog about her rehab, because of course she did, it didn't go very well. And she made a comment on a particular post that accused me of being a liar. And she said that I had my facts all wrong. She hoped my friends knew better. And she told me that she was done with me. And if you don't know what done with is in the South, that means dead to me. We were estranged. I was out of her life. So we didn't talk for a couple of years. And it wasn't until her doctor had suggested that she get her affairs in order that she gave me a call. During that phone call, we talked about the blog that I had written, and I explained to her that I never intended to hurt her. It was just that I was broken by what had happened, and I was a writer, and I didn't know how else to get my thoughts out, and I assured her that I had taken everything down as soon as she had made the comment, and I was so, so sorry. She told me how hard it had been to be estranged from me for the last couple of years, and how much she had missed me. You know, Susan, it's... It's just that I used to love you so much. Um, Mom, was that past tense? Well, Susan, we ended that conversation by her telling me she thought that we could repair our relationship if I called more often, but after she told me she didn't love me anymore, I didn't see much point in it, so I didn't. I went back to radio silence for the next year until I got another phone call from my sister telling me that my mom had been put onto hospice care. I booked a flight home and when I walked into the living room, it was kind of like walking into Santa Claus's nursing home. It was the beginning of December and so despite my mom's help, they had decorated the entire house and every surface had a nativity set or a Santa figurine. and. There were trees and poinsettias and Christmas presents, and in the middle of it all is my mother lying on a hospital bed where our sofa used to be. And when I walked in the door that day, she kind of had to squint to see who's coming in with the light coming in. And when she recognized me, she just glared. What are you doing here? <laughs> well, I'm here to watch you die, is what I thought. <laughs> But uh, instead, I just walked over and was like, you know, I'm here to see you, Mom. And I leaned over to hug her, because I didn't know what else to do. And I told her that I loved her, and she didn't say it back. You know, Susan, you didn't need to come. I know how you feel about me from you not calling for so long. Mom, you told me you used to love me, past tense. Susan, you'll just never understand how much you hurt me. I started crying and told her again how sorry I was and reminded her that I'd taken everything down offline. Mom, I didn't mean to hurt you. 
everything's gone and I don't know how to take it back, but we're running out of time. I need you to forgive me. Please forgive me before we, it's too late. And she sighed and looked at me. Susan, you'll never know how much you broke my heart. A few days after that, um, the hospice nurses came by and they had given us this list of nine things to look for as my mom's health declined. And at that point, we had gotten to eight out of nine. Um, I knew that I wasn't going to get that deathbed reconciliation I had hoped for. And my sister and I decided that even though Christmas was just a week away, we should probably go ahead and celebrate with mom the next time she woke up which we did. Uh, it's not easy to buy your mother a Christmas gift for her last Christmas, so once she got to mine, I was pretty excited that she laughed when she opened it. Susan, I swear if I had been able to go out and get you something, I was totally gonna buy you a Snuggie too. Uh, so it went over well and that, it was a nice moment. Um, but after that, she didn't really come around a lot anymore. And soon we realized that my sister was going to have mom on a hospital bed in the living room for an, who knew how long. So we put mom into a nursing home as a temporary measure so that my sister could get her shit in order. And when we did, mom came around as we were getting her settled into her room. I tried to explain where she was and she seemed to understand and when I told her it was just temporary and that we'd have her home as soon as possible she just jerked her head to the side to show how pissed off she was at me. Later we were leaving to go get dinner and I told mom that we'd be back after we ate and for the first time in days she forced out a single word. She stared directly into my eyes and just said, heartbroken. Before we got to the restaurant, my sister got a call from the nursing home and they had found mom unresponsive in her room and they took her to the hospital. And 12 hours later, on December 29th, my mom was gone. Since then, Christmas has been a bummer. It's been five years this year and so far, every year has either sent me into a ridiculous drinking binge to just numb it all out, or I dig into a hole of depression where I get all hermity and hide away until the new year. This year, however, I'm making a change. I have put my energy instead of into avoidance. I am focusing it on my work, and last week, on December 11th, which happens to be my mother's birthday, I launched my first solo show. Thank you very much. And tonight, I'm here sharing my story with all of you. So, Christmas 2015, so far so good. Thank you. Watching the people around Baby, please come home 
That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Death Cab for Cutie behind me now, and we just heard from Susan Kent. Now, remember, support for Risk comes from OneMonth.com. One Month is the absolute best place to learn how to code in just one month. I have taken classes with them before. They're extraordinary. In just one month, you can go from knowing zero about coding to building programs in languages like Python, Ruby, and JavaScript. If you're interested in leveling up your career for a limited time, head to onemonth.com risk to get 10% off any coding course. Now here is where Risk is appearing live next on January 19th. We are back in Los Angeles at the Bootleg Theater. On January 24th, we're in New York at Caveat. On January 26th, we are at San Francisco Sketchfest at Swedish American Hall. Now, every show I mention from here on out, we need your pitches. We need you to pitch us your stories. You could be a part of any of these shows I'm about to list now. You just go to risk-show.com slash submissions and all you need to know about how to pitch us is there. On February 7th, we're coming to Cleveland. Pitch us your stories for our show on February 7th in Cleveland. On February 8th, we're in Cincinnati. That's my hometown. For the first time ever, we're coming to Cincinnati on February 8th. On March 2nd, we're in Indianapolis. So pitch us your stories for our show on March 2nd in Indianapolis. On March 15th, we're in Milwaukee. On March 16th, we're in Madison, Wisconsin. On March 29th, we're in Salt Lake City. And on April 12th, we're in Richmond, Virginia. So, again, risk-show.com slash submissions. All you need to know about how to pitch us is there. We'll even list what the suggested themes for all of those nights are right there. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Oh, and everything 
is almost exactly the same. The only difference here is yesterday I was wearing a t-shirt. Tonight, I've gone topless. Hey, this fucking guy took his fucking t-shirt off. Hey, um, <laughs> I figured since Kevin's not watching me, I could, <laughs> I could be as comfortable as I want to be.